Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today's December 9th, 2022, and I'm joined as usual by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today we're going to talk about the clear pattern that emerged from the 2022 midterm election. So, Dr. Matthews, um, today is December 9th, so this is the, just a few days after the completion of the Georgia runoff election, where Reverend Raphael Warnock defeated Herschel Walker. So, it's the end of the midterms, and it's the end of a particularly, I think, discouraging midterm for Republicans. And part of why the midterm election was discouraging and disappointing for Republicans is that everyone was expecting more or less some sort of a something between a red wave and a red tsunami. Mm-hmm. And it it just didn't happen. Or or did it? You barely got a red trickle. No, no, that, that's exactly right. But there were places where Republicans won by 20 and 25 points. Yes, indeed. So it was a very peculiar election. And having uh, you and I have both looked at the data, you and I both examined the data, and you and I have both uh, listened to other election experts who have looked at the data, and it seems like there is a very clear pattern that has emerged. Um, A couple nights ago, I spoke uh, to a group here in North Texas, and I went through the Georgia results. And again, this is a couple days after the Georgia runoff. You have a situation in Georgia where every statewide elected official, statewide, not, you know, in congressional districts or whatever, every statewide elected official won by between seven and nine points, is a Republican Mm -hmm. and won by between seven to nine points. It's governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, land commissioner, insurance commissioner, secretary of of state. Um, It's like the, the top seven or eight offices in Georgia are all Republican plus eight plus nine. I think one of them was plus seven. Mm -hmm. So in the common discourse, people have begun referring to Georgia as a swing state. They've been referring to Georgia as a purple state. But when all of the top statewide offices were won by Republicans by eight or nine percentage points, that's not a purple state. Mm -hmm. That's not a swing state. That is still a red state. That's still a Republican state. And so but you have to ask yourself, how does that state end up with two Democrat senators? And not just Democrat senators, but pretty progressive left-leaning senators. Indeed. And the, but the Georgia story is just part of a pattern that we see other places, too. In Ohio, you had Governor Mike DeWine. Now, I've been in a room with Mike DeWine two or three times. And Mike DeWine is a boring person, okay? He, he is not a, he's not a humorous person. He's not a fiery speaker. He's mm-hmm. not charismatic. He is about as generic a Republican as you can find. And Mike DeWine won Ohio governorship. He's a Republican by 25%. 25%. 25%. 62.8% versus the Democrat 37.2%. Not a celebrity. No. Not a TV personality. Not controversial. Basically, just a stand-in for generic Republican, mm-hmm. and he won by twenty-five percent. Now, the reason that's interesting is not just because it was a big margin, but because you also had a Republican Senate race in Ohio. Right. 
you had a very prominent Republican Senate. That's exactly race. right, J.D. Vance. Mm-hmm. But J.D. Vance dramatically underperformed Mike DeWine. Yes, by, by about six points. Yeah, yeah. I'm excuse me, Bob. He he only beat Tim Ryan by he about only got six points. Six so, points more. So he underperformed Mike DeWine by nineteen by points. by nineteen points. Okay, that's an astonishing spread. When most when most partisan elections are only won by like three to five percentage points. Mm-hmm. And you have the Republican governor outperform the Republican Senate candidate by 19 points. That is eye-popping. Yes. That is eyebrow-raising. And what it means is an awful lot of people voted for Mike DeWine and either didn't vote for the Senate candidate or voted for Tim Ryan instead. That's right. In fact, just this morning I was reading an analysis in Politico. Um, Republican turnout was not down in the midterm elections. Republican turnout was up. Mm-hmm. In fact, Republican turnout in the midterm elections was higher than Democrat turnout nationwide. So the problem is not that Republicans stayed home. The problem is that there were certain Republican candidates who Republicans couldn't bring themselves to vote for. Right. Now, we're we're going to we're going to sort of describe this pattern now. And we're going to get into some dicey territory, and some of our listeners may not like what we have to say, but data is data. And it doesn't matter how you feel about the data. It doesn't matter whether the data reflects your worldview or not, or your particular political philosophy. Data is data. And when you see this kind of pattern emerging to where certain kind of Republicans are winning by healthy margins and other kinds of Republicans are losing or barely squeaking by, if you like winning elections, you got to figure out what that pattern is. So let me give you another example, because we've often thought of Kansas as a red state. I mean, right. this was Bob Dole's state, Nancy Kassebaum's state. I mean, it had been a red state for a while. Yeah. No, no one ever thought about Kansas as being like a far right, hardcore conservative right. state, but it was a Republican state. It was, it was a, a Midwest state. moderate Republican state. So in the, in the um, uh, Senate race in Kansas, Jerry Moran won by, uh, with 60 points against his Democratic challenger who got 36.9, another 25-point spread mm. in the Senate. Yeah, For, and, and let's, let's just Jerry Moran, a Republican. Right, yeah. Jerry Moran, a Republican. But when you look at the governor's race in Kansas, the Democrat won, not by much, about two points, but Laura Kelly won by about two points as the governor. So you have actually sort of a spread of 27 points there mm-hmm. because— uh, Laura Kelly gets about two points more than the Republican in that, in the, in, the, in the governor's race. Right. So, so far, all of these patterns we've talked about have all literally been in this most recent midterm election yeah. within, within, the, within the last couple of weeks to days. Uh, but if we go to Arizona, we see an interesting situation where uh, the current governor of, of Arizona, the Republican Doug Ducey, won his reelection in 2018 mm-hmm. going away. Yes. He won it going away. He was highly, highly popular. And now you go to 2022 and a Democrat wins rather than a Republican. Just by a little bit. That's right. Barely. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's less than a point. Right. So you have the Republican candidate, Carrie Lake, essentially complaining that the election was stolen and that Mm -hmm. there were irregularities. You can't explain a gap that big by irregularities and by a stolen election. Something else changed. And something else had happened there because Mark Kelly, the incumbent senator in Arizona, he wins by 51.4% over Blake Masters, who got 465 So there's about a five-point spread there. Mm-hmm. So Carrie Lake, even though she lost, 
still outperformed the person running for as a Republican for the Senate race by about four and a half points. So there were people who said, I'm voting for Kerry Lake, but I cannot vote for Blake Masters. That's right. That's right. And so let's let's look at New Hampshire because New Hampshire is interesting. Chris Sununu is a very popular person. The Sununu family has been. Mm-hmm. He won his run for governor, 57.1% against Tom Sherman, 41.6%. So there's a 16-point spread there. Okay, again, a huge spread. A huge yeah, spread right. in New Hampshire. Whereas Maggie Hassan, the Democratic candidate for the Senate in New Hampshire, wins 53.6% over Don Bolduck, 44.4%. So a nine-point spread in favor of the Democrat in the Senate race. So again, these are state statewide races and everybody in the state gets to vote. This isn't this isn't affected by gerrymandering or anything of right. that nature. But if you if you add in, in, in that state, that's New Hampshire, right? Right. If you add the Republican governor's spread right. to the Democrat senator spread. Twenty five point spread. You end up with a gigantic, gigantic spread. Between the Republican running for governor and the de- and the Republican running for the Senate, yeah. so so I would argue that Mike Dewine had a red tsunami, mm-hmm. and that uh, Sununu in New Hampshire had a red tsunami, and um, Brian Kemp in Georgia had a red tsunami. Georgia had a red tsunami. Uh, DeSantis in Florida had a red tsunami in those individual races, but it didn't trickle down to some of these other races, right? And the pattern seems very clear. And I'm just going to come out and say it. Candidates who were closely aligned with Donald Trump mm-hmm. underperformed candidates who were not. And that's that's been the finding of all the analysts who've been going through these things and crunching the numbers. The New York Times has one here just the other day that they ran a couple of days ago. And they said uh, they said in the 36 most competitive races, house races, 36 most competitive house races, as determined by the Cook Political Report, Trump endorsed uh, candidates in five of the contests, all five lost. In the Senate, uh, or in the ones where Trump gave the most money in the last, uh, in the last few weeks of the, uh, of the races, in seven races across the uh, six states, Trump's super PAC money, spent money, uh, all of them lost except for the Ohio Senate. And so when you add in, and, and so it's actually one to six. You got the Ohio Senate, but in these other races, it was six losses. So it's just, it's very clear that the, the candidates that Trump supported, even candidates that looked pretty good like Adam Laxalt, mm-hmm. um, they just did not do that well. So, Adam Laxalt almost won right? But in, in Nevada, but most of them were beaten significantly and oftentimes in states, whereas we're pointing out in Georgia, New Hampshire, and, and Kansas and other states, another Republican running f- across the state won by huge margins. Here's another interesting data point. This was the first midterm election since 1936 where the incumbent party was able to hang on to was able to hang on to all of their senate seats right. where not a single senate seat flipped against the incumbent party. The normal trend at a midterm election is that the incumbent party in the White House suffers defeats. Right. Their margin shrinks or the House or the Senate or both will flip. It's it's just sort of like the normal pendulum swing of American elections. This is the first time since 1936 
that the incumbent party did not lose a single Senate seat. Now, Republicans had more uh, Senate seats at ri- at stake than mm-hmm. uh, than Democrats, but even still, you would expect Republicans to have picked up at least two or three in a normal sort of midterm election where the president is so unpopular and the economy is, is struggling in a lot of ways, inflation is so high, that just didn't happen. And, and, and we really need to underscore this, okay? People were not wrong to expect a red wave. They were not wrong to expect a red tsunami. All the ingredients were there, not just the normal midterm swing, but the high inflation, the perception that the economy is not doing well, the lingering frustration that so many Americans have over the cowardly withdrawal from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the huge, huge spending that the federal government has done, the unpopularity of President Biden, the unpopularity of the vice president, Kamala Harris, all of those things should have contributed toward a big swing for Republicans. And as we've described, some Republicans did get a big swing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the ones who are not closely identified with Donald Trump. And the ones who were closely identified with Donald Trump underperformed. Even if they won, like J.D. Vance, they still underperformed. Now, regardless of how anybody in our audience feels about President Trump, I think I think many of us who are conservatives, who are Republicans, are very grateful for the significant policy successes that happened during his presidency. Uh, we have a we have a conservative Supreme Court today that overthrew Roe v. Wade because of Donald Trump. So, but regardless of how you feel about President Trump, and regardless of how loyal you feel toward him, it is very clear that that is Donald Trump is not a winning formula for winning elections, and. I'm tired of losing. <laughs> as a conservative and as a Republican, I'm tired of losing. And I don't want a scenario where, because the Republican Party nominated bad candidates, the Democrats control the Senate, and God forbid Clarence Thomas dies in the next year and a half, and the Democrats are able to put a progressive lefty in that seat on the Supreme Court because we ran Herschel Walker for the Senate. And Let's let's just highlight something here. It is the Republicans in the various states who put who voted these candidates in from the primaries. Right. And so part of the problem is I think a lot of Republican voters are not asking who is the most conservative candidate who can win mm-hmm. and who is the person who's most qualified because most of the people that Donald Trump backed were not terribly qualified for the job that right. he was Pushing them on. Many, many of them were just brand new. In to many them. cases, they had no government, no experience in government. In many cases, they were just celebrities, uh, controversialists, people like that. They and, they and, had never demonstrated any experience or any competence in 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 any elected office whatsoever. And many of them had uh, had issues in their loads background. of baggage, loads of baggage. And mm-hmm. and it, it's not always the case that when you run for lower offices, that all that baggage gets exposed. Sometimes they find some more later. But once you've been vetted through a couple of races, whether you're just, it's at the school board, it's the city council, it's the mayor, uh, it's a member of, of the House, or the state house or senate. Once you've had that vetting a little bit, people have a little bit better idea. They sometimes come up with something else. Right. But for the most part, we found out all kinds of things about the, some of these candidates that just thought, this is just not, this isn't good. And Herschel Walker was sort of, the number one on that list, with his own son, yeah. who is a conservative, yep. uh, criticizing his father. When 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 we 
I know this sounds by now like we're beating a dead horse, but I just think it's a really important thing for for average Republican voters to process this data. When you look at a situation where boring, competent Republicans won by huge margins, but Trump-associated candidates lost or dramatically underperformed, when you look at that pattern, uh, you really have to, I think, be reminded of what a couple of the people who most formed the modern conservative movement said. And one of those is Ronald Reagan, who said famously, if someone agrees with you 80% of the time, they're an ally. Mm -hmm. They're not a 20% traitor. And that feeds right into the William F. Buckley quote that you alluded to a moment ago, which is that we should support the most conservative candidate who is electable, not just the most conservative person, but the, the most conservative candidate, the most conservative electable candidate. And you cannot, you cannot have your share of influence in a self-governing society if you keep losing legislative races. And, you know, one of the things when you point about electable candidate, we need to stress different states are different. Yes. Um, Susan Collins wins in Maine, and she's won for years. Mm-hmm. She probably wouldn't win as a Republican in Texas. Yep. But she can win in Maine. But Ted Cruz could not win as a Republican in Maine. So you, it, it, it depends upon the state where you are and the, and the population that you have. So you may think is if you're in a state where you're a moderate state or even a blue-leaning state, mm-hmm. and you've got a Republican up here who's a firebrand doing all kinds of things, you, say, oh, you know, maybe, maybe somebody who's a little duller but also uh, has the experience and so forth, that may be the better person in, this, in our particular state. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to, in, in wrapping things up here, I'm going to make a statement that you have occasionally disagreed with, or at least wanted to sort of insisted that there should be an asterisk appended to it. But I like to say the, the only job of political parties is to win elections. Uh, now it may be that a better way to say that is that the main job of political parties is to win elections, but that's the only reason for the existence of a political party is to win elections. That's, that is what they are tasked with doing. And so the question, I think, for the Republican Party, and it's for the for the elites in the party, but mostly for just the grassroots voters in the Republican Party, the question is, do you want to win elections or not? And I think the data from the midterm of 2022 makes it very clear that you can be loyal to Donald Trump or you can win elections, but you can't do both. And yet at some point you have to choose. And, and I'll just close by saying Republicans have often not won elections. And so we've, I've pointed this out before. You go back to when George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988 won the majority of the popular vote. Since 1988, only one Republican presidential candidate has won the popular vote, 2004. Yep. I'm not saying they're bad candidates. I'm no. just saying Republicans have a harder task. They've got they've got the thread a needle more carefully in order to be able to win the presidency, but from the present standpoint, since we're heading towards twenty twenty four, it is time for Republicans to try to make sure they get a candidate who can win the majority of the population. That's I I, I agree totally. Now neither you nor I believe that the president should be elected by the popular right. vote. We are strong defenders of the electoral college, but practically speaking, your game plan shouldn't be. 
we're never going to be able to sw- persuade the majority of Americans, but we have other ways to thread the needle. Right. If, if you really do want to put together a long-term governing uh, majority, you've got to be able to appeal to the majority of Americans. Exactly. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We would invite you to go to our website at ipi.org and to sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, content, and events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? If this podcast made you angry, send me an email, but don't give us a negative review. (laughs) That would be better. We would far prefer that. You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.